So great to see all of you all. Welcome to Sedaris. Uh, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris Church, and uh, it is my birthday. Thank you, Tylene and Melissa and everybody. Um, I knew all week that it was coming, all week. And um, even in the moment, I was surprised because I was like, wait a sec, is Tylene, is she doing a third song now? Now we do three at the end today. That's what we talked about. Did Tylene change it on me? And surprised even, even though I knew it was coming in some way, shape, or form. So anyways, thank you. It's great to be here with you all. I'm so glad to be spending it like this with you guys. Um, one thing I, um, I'll, I'll point you to um, is, by way of announcement as well, is um, on November um, the 11th, um, I believe it's the 11th. Is that the right date, Andrew? I'm sorry. This is the 19th. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, there, there's a slide. Um, uh, we actually experienced a, a loss as a community when um, Andrew and, and Sarah Ann, uh, many of you know this, uh, uh, gave birth to their stillborn child at about seven and a half, eight months of pregnancy. Um, and so uh, they are having a memorial service on November 19th, the time where we get to um, just lean into and, and everything that, uh, that, is, that uh, God is, is doing in the midst of this. Remember Miles, um, support them. Uh, so they, they uh, wanted to open up the invite to everybody here at Sedaris Church. I believe Andrew said, we, we, we recognize that we're kind of the older people here in the community, and uh, we'd love to just invite anybody alongside us as we uh, go through this time as a family. And so uh, we just wanted to let you know that that invite is open to you guys on the 19th, 11 a.m. Um, here in this room. Uh, with uh, There's a reception to follow as well. So uh, just to let you guys know that everybody is invited to that and uh, uh, to remember Miles. Uh, yeah, there's no easy way to say that or deliver this news, but thank you for everybody who has come alongside their family in this time, supported them, loved them. Um, I know that uh, it has meant the world to them, so, uh, so thank you. All right, well, let's continue on here in our time of teaching, because um, we are going to engage a passage here that um, really flies in the face of death, actually. If you saw Dave uh, up here worshiping this morning, and he's put his hand up, uh, he was just worshiping God. And then his son, Owen, came up and ran to him and was like, oh, this guy, this guy's looking for a high five. Did you see that? <laughs> don't, leave a, don't leave a guy hanging. So he comes up and gave him a high five. And I, I saw it happen and I was like, that's what we're preaching about today, actually. There's a little, we're we're going to be in the passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where it talks about how death no longer has victory. And that Christians, we get to celebrate this with one another. And so Owen just coming up and giving Dave a high five while he was worshiping. There should be more high fives in worship, maybe. It's perhaps what I just learned from Owen, you know. Uh, so just keep your eyes open. These Sedaris kids, they can teach you stuff. They can really teach you some stuff. Uh, but we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Um, so if you want to grab your Bibles and open them up, we use those each and every Sunday. We have Bibles underneath the seats in front of you as well. And when you uh, get it, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We've actually been going through um, chapter 15 uh, for quite a stretch now. We started the book of 1 Corinthians all the way back in January, took a break in the summer. Um, but we've been going through it. And then and as we came to 15, we've really slowed down because chapter 15 is really a conclusion of sorts. It's a conclusion where Paul unpacks the gospel for the Corinthians. Um, but it's way more than a conclusion because Paul has been urging the Corinthians to do and, and, and consider a lot of things through the previous 14 chapters. It's like been a big laundry list. So if you've been going through it with us, it's like one thing after another, after another, after another. But this in chapter 15 is really his most impassioned plea 
for them. You can hear it, you can feel it in his language. You can, you, as you read through it, you're like, man, Paul is really, really, really passionate about this plea that he's making to them to consider the resurrection. But it's even more than a climax. What we saw, what Dave brought up last week, is actually this chapter is kind of the interpretive key to the rest of the letter. And so actually, we've actually skipped forward to it at, at times in the past 10 months to actually look and see, oh, we can understand this passage because of what Paul says in, in 15. So it's an interpretive key to the rest of the letter and perhaps even Paul's entire life and ministry. This is like, if you want to understand the Apostle Paul and what he was about and how he viewed his work in the world and what motivated him, what got him out of bed, what kept him going in the midst of everything, chapter 15, that's where you go. This is the kernel, the, the driving force of Paul's life. And we find that this driving force is the gospel of Jesus and primarily the resurrection of Jesus. And so we've been unpacking that today because uh, um, if you haven't been here, um, he's slowing down to articulate something very interesting. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus for the Corinthian church. And this is because, um, quite simply, they had stopped considering it. They had stopped considering it. Now, Paul says they had accepted it. They had taken their stand on it. They were being saved by it. He's, those are, it's in the beginning of 15. But they had stopped considering it. They, they saw the gospel as kind of like Christianity 101. Like, once you get that, you can move on to the other classes. And, and Paul, if he kind of rolled into that, this analogy, he would probably say, Christianity isn't just like the entry class that we, we attend in order to move on to the more advanced classes of like public speaking and speaking in tongues. These are the things that the Corinthians were thinking they were doing. Oh, there's more advanced things than the gospel. He said, no, no, no. The gospel is like the library where you do all your studying and you're in there each and every week. At least I did in my undergrad. Maybe you were able to skip the library. Kudos to you. Dave, were you able to skip the library? Maybe? I think... Yeah, I think you're able to skip the, the, the library. Some of us can skip the library. Um, but no, it's more like the library. This is, this is the place where you're always marinating, the, the, the place where you're always soaking. The gospel of Jesus is that for the Christian life. And so he's urging them to start considering the gospel again, particularly the resurrection. And, and so we're urging you to start considering the gospel if you haven't before, or we're urging you to start considering it again particularly the resurrection in these past five weeks now. And it's been great to have conversations with, with many of you who have humbly admitted, I have not coherently considered the resurrection much before. I actually haven't thought, I, I, I accepted it, I, I stand on it, I'm, I'm being saved by it, but I really haven't considered it much before. Um, or I did once and now I've stopped altogether. And I pray and hope these conversations continue because as we lean into the resurrection, what we are actually doing as you consider it is you tap into the power of the gospel. You begin to unlock the power of transformation in your life. And so it's so, 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 so important. It's truly amazing. Um, and so when we coherently consider the resurrection, transformation takes place, which is one way to say it. Another way to say it is that when we don't consider it, uh, transformation does not take place. Just the opposite side of, of the statement here. In fact, uh, deterioration and decay might set into the Christian life. Uh, without the, the, the constant, continual, careful consideration of the gospel and, and the resurrections, Christians might find themselves depressed, anxious, 
uh, utterly sinful, like more sinful than before. What's going on? Miserable, actually. Miserable. And, and this misery can, can derail us from, from meaningful uh, participation and contribution in the kingdom of God now in our spheres of influence and in our circles And we hope this chapter has really served as a great pathway to get us back on track, spending time in the library of the gospel again, which can lead to transformation and all the joy that comes with that transformation. So that's, in short, what we're really doing. It's just a call back to the... If that's a new concept to you, that that the gospel isn't an entry ticket to the concert, but like the music itself at the concert, that's a, that's a great takeaway to take with you. The gospel is where we sit all the time in Jesus' death and resurrection, and that is what will continually change us. And we're urging everybody along with Paul, stay there. Don't feel like it's elementary that we can move on from it. So, 1 Corinthians 15. Um, many of us have listened to four sermons now. We've unpacked uh, these passages with each other in our cohorts for five weeks. We've unpacked the sermons with each other for five weeks. Um, and so raise your hand if 1 Corinthians 15 is really clear to you. Dave. It's not simple. This isn't simple stuff. It's not easy. It's, it's a bit complex to understand. This is part of the reason why the gospel is not Christianity 101, but the place where we sit and marinate in. It, it, it's not easy. And and that's okay. God knows that. Paul knows that, which is why he now provides a conclusion, okay? He's going to give us a conclusion. He's going to pull all of these concepts that he's been talking about in in chapter 15 together. He's going to touch on all the themes that he's discussed up to this point. So go ahead, and uh, we're going to read that conclusion together. It starts in verse 50. Verse 50. What's it like this? says, what I am saying, brothers and sisters, all right, so he's made all this argumentation. Now, what, now, this is what I'm saying. Conclusion time is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. There's that word changed again. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory, where death is your sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Is not in vain. Well, will you bow your head and pray with me as we lean into these these verses together? Uh, Father God, we we come to you as just people seeking something greater, something outside of ourselves. We, we, we come to you admitting that, that, that we need something outside of ourselves to, to, to help us, to help us get through this life, to, to give us meaning and purpose and, and drive and, and desire for something that's other than ourselves. God, right now, I ask that you would come into this place, um, that you would send your spirit in increasing measure. We thank you for the promise that you do that, God. 
that we might be able to lean into your scriptures, that we might be able to look, into, look at them and look into them as the supreme, beautiful gift that they are and open our hearts up to receive them. So Lord, just be with, with us, be with, with me and, and my words, God. I just pray that, that your word would be just made evident, the, the, the message of the gospel, that's all we're talking about, the message of the gospel that's been preached for 2,000 years would just be made evident this morning that lives might be changed. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. By your spirit. Amen. Amen. All right, so Paul starts this by saying, what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Is this. So, so he just did all these paragraphs of, of argumentation. He says, this is what I'm, but this is what I'm saying. And, and I especially love this. I really do. I, I love it because he's being a bit crafty here. What is he doing? He's actually just reciting back to the Corinthians the concern that they have, the concern that they had before they even received this letter. He's saying something to them that they already believe, that that we've talked about over the past couple weeks. He's actually just shared a sentence that encapsulates their concern, which is this, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. And so Paul's been like sending arguments at him, like one, two, three, four, probably already in, in 1 Corinthians 15. And, and then he says, this is what I'm saying. And they're like, wait a sec. That's what we're saying, Paul. Like, why are we arguing? Why are you arguing with us? We're saying the same thing, right? <clears throat> the body, this is what's interesting. This is what they did. We've talked about this a little bit here and there. Um, really what... They understood in the Greek cultures that this body, this comes all the way back from Socrates, this body is plagued and decaying, and and what we need to do in this life is really just look forward to death because then we're going to be freed from the body and and things are all going to be hunky-dory. And and when um, Paul showed up and preached to the Corinthians all about the gospel, they likely didn't actually replace this philosophy that they had previously. They just tried to Christianize it. They just tried to, to, to Christianize it. And what they would say probably is like, this body is plagued by fleshly desires and sin. It's, it's opposite God's intentions. We need to get rid of it. And so when Paul says flesh and blood and a corrupt body can't inherit the kingdom, they would reply, amen, exactly. That's the problem. Why are you trying to tell us something else about the resurrection? How embarrassing that we would carry these bodies with us into the next life. Can't you see that in, in order to make it easier for the Greek mind to get on board with the gospel, that we'd be better if we didn't talk about this bodiless state in the future? That'd be a lot better. You know, come on, Paul. Can't you see we have a better chance of winning over Seattleites if we don't say that God cares about what they do with their body? That's probably our equivalent. Oh, you can follow Jesus. He doesn't care that much what you do with your body. You know? They're doing something similar for the Corinthian church. So Paul says, hey, we're addressing the same problem. But then he puts this word, listen, listen. Your solution to do away with the body is wrong. God has another solution to this problem that you've all together missed. And, and for those of us not continually and coherently considering the gospel of Jesus, we've missed it too. We've missed it too, okay? And so Paul is going to articulate three primary things about the resurrection here in these verses. He talks about so much, but there's three primary things. He tells us what we've missed about the resurrection. He tells us how we can prepare for it. And he tells us the benefits of the resurrection now. The benefits now that we obtain from it if we keep considering it. 
So that's how we're going to spend the remainder of our time this morning. Okay, that's it. Just what we've missed, how we can, how we can prepare, and the benefits, okay? So what does Paul say we've missed? So that word changed. He repeated it twice. So you guys aren't quite understanding. The body that's resurrected isn't the body that you have now. It's altogether changed. It's altogether different. Resurrection, it's not a return of the old. It's the inauguration of a new body, a new what we've called heavenly body. These physically and morally decaying bodies of ours are changed. They're transformed. They're altogether different. They become redeemed, made new. Now, this is, this is my fear, that you just nod along at this point like the Corinthians must have done when Paul first presented the gospel to them. Because there's one primary reason that you might just nod along at this point instead of welling up with an incredible, hopeful, jubilant joy. You're unaware of or hiding from the corrupt and mortal cloud that plagues our existence. You're unaware of or hiding from this corrupt and mortal cloud that just plagues our existence. We live lives in a world of, with physical and moral degrading bodies and in a world that's physically and morally decaying itself. This is the water that, that we swim in with our broken fish bodies. And, and it's so broken and morally decaying and we're so used to it that we don't realize that we're not even swimming in water. It's actually oil. This is a, a, a really rough spot that we're in. We, we can't really see it. We're not completely aware from it. When we brush into it, we, we tend to hide from it a little bit. Darkness, decay, pain, disordered and corrupt flesh and blood. It's, it's everywhere. And that's the only existence that we've ever, ever lived in. That's the only thing that we know. All we know is what it's like to live under a constant barrage of disordered fleshly appetites for food, sex, control, fear, among other things. There's, there's a huge list. We live under a barrage of peer pressure, <laughs> That's always there from the world. We, we live under a barrage of, of temptation from the enemies, uh, from dark spiritual forces, okay? It's so difficult for us to imagine what life without all of that could actually look like. In fact, we, we might be completely incapable of it. Like, like life absent all those things? What? The, the freedom that, that you likely imagine the resurrection giving you, no matter, I mean... It's probably just a sliver of what the, that beautiful promise of a, a future state with uh, no physical and moral decay in the systems around us and in our own bodies is actually going to deliver to us. This is incredibly great news. If you hear the good news of the resurrection and it's still good news and not great news, because we're, we're unaware of and perhaps even hiding from how dark this place really is. Um, I'm going to give you just an example um, because I think that, that it's hard for us to really lean into and embrace how, how rough of a spot we're in here. I want you to imagine even your best relationships, your best, your most vibrant, your most encouraging relationships that, that you're in, the ones that are, are most meaningful to you. Okay, Do you have those in mind? Even those are wrought with turmoil and disunity that's just festering beneath the surface ready to spring up at any point in time if you bring up the wrong subject. 
even marriage. Even marriage. So, like, for, for those of you single people out there, like marriage is not this special relationship that's absent this tension that you feel with every other human in the world. That's there. It, it, it's just a, a dark, this is just one area. We're just talking about relationships, okay? But even the best of them, all of them have this undercurrent to them that, that you know there's certain topics that you can't talk about if you really want to maintain the peace. It's just the reality of life. This fallen, decaying moral world and our fallen, decaying moral, physical bodies as well. So if that's how the best relationship, if that's true of even the best relationships we have, how much more is it true of even the ones that aren't that great? I mean, there's such a level of, of darkness that needs to be set right in our world. And, and here's what we typically do with the physical and the moral decay that we come into contact with all day, every day, okay? We numb ourselves to it. We, we, we don't fix it. In fact, actually, in fact we, we just realize that we're unable to. We can't. And we numb it. We find ways to distract ourselves. Um, we perhaps even become indifferent to it. And so when someone talks to us about the resurrection, we just kind of nod along, unable. Um, I don't think it's that we're truly unwilling, just unable to imagine something else. We're just so used to the status quo and this notion and this reality of a future resurrected state is so infinitely beyond what we experience right now that we can't even imagine it. And, and, and so what we really want to lean into is, is we need to wake up. We need to wake up and think about this future resurrection that is to come because no matter how often that you consider it, no matter how often you lean into it, there's always more to be discovered about how beautiful and amazing that is going to be. It's going to be so incredible. It's such incredible news. We have a future promised no pain, no weight of the flesh, no peer pressure, no temptation, no broken systems of the world weighing in on us. It's complete freedom. It's incredible. Are you considering this or have you stopped? Or have you stopped? Because this is what's at stake. How you engage your future reality will inform the decisions you make this very day, this present day. Dave talked about this last week a lot, that, that we, we look at our future reality, our future heaven, heavenly uh, resurrected bodies, and let those inform and, and help us make decisions today. And, and this is not something that just Christians do. Christians aren't the only ones doing this. All humans have an envisioned future state of what happens after death. And what that picture is, washes back and informs how they behave that day. Everybody, everybody. Atheists, even though they think there's nothing. <laughs> Agnostics, reincarnation, nirvana, the Quranic, the Quranic depiction of paradise. And for each person, there's no escaping the reality that their present decisions are informed by that picture in a, in a certain sense. We're intrinsically hopeful beings in that way, and you might say, well, some people have no hope in the future, but all I'm saying is that, that there's no getting around the fact that your imagined future state gives you energy today to make decisions that walk in that direction. It's just part and parcel of what it means to be human. I would say we're, we're hopeful beings in that way. We're, we're, we're hopeful beings. Can't, can't get away from that. Um, the, the atheists will drink, eat, and parties for tomorrow they die, and they know there's nothing after. Each, of course, does it in their own nuanced way. Um, the agnostic is similar. Who knows what's coming after death? I might as well pursue what makes me happy now. 
Reincarnation makes people lean into karma. Nirvana makes people lean into the eightfold path of Buddhism and so on and so forth. And the tragedy is that without continual consideration of the resurrection of the gospel, and particularly the resurrection of this mystery that Paul says, the Christian life has the tendency to devolve into the the current cultural imagination of the afterlife. And so here in, in the West, it's probably an agnostic one. We have really no way to understand what's coming after all of this, so we might as well pursue the things that make us happy now. Um, and so their lives lived, and so the, like at, w- when we do this, our, li- our lives, because we have the same future imagined state and we're making the same conclusions about it, look the same as someone who might just say, ah, maybe there's a God, maybe not. We really don't know. We've got to get the thrills out of this life while we can. And, and so everything Dave said last week, you know, I'm, I'm really just, you know, providing additional commentary here. Paul, he brings up all these arguments again. Um, go back and listen to all these sermons, you know, because all of them are just so rich and full of these concepts that, are, that Paul is designing to point the Corinthians towards life again, towards meaning, towards purpose. So everything that Dave said last week, and don't wait to do it. Don't wait. Because your life is more existentially satisfying? Well, sure, maybe, maybe. But Paul is saying here, you might not actually have a chance if you wait. You might not actually, that, that's the primary reason why Paul is talking about it here. You might not actually have the chance. And it's not because you might suddenly die in your sleep, although that might happen to you. Sorry, he's talking about really morbid things. Um, but it's, it's because as Paul said in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed. Like that. This phrase, in a moment, doesn't really capture the brevity of Christ's return. Different translations have tried to translate this Greek word, atomos, different ways. And the, the Greek word, it, it, it means an amount of time so small that you can't divide it any further. Okay, That you can't divide it any further. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, that once you see it, then it's gone. Paul is saying that when Jesus returns, no one's going to have a chance to come back to 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> Start their consideration. Things are going to get wrapped up. Don't wait. The switch is about to get flipped. The lights are going to come on. And we're going to see who's naked and who's clothed. This is the analogy Paul uses. We're going to see who's naked and who's clothed, which brings us to our next point, okay? How to prepare for the resurrection. How to prepare for the resurrection that's coming. Um, I hope it's clear the first step is considering it. All right, great. So when you're considering it, that's the first step. But next we see that Paul goes through a line of reasoning here in, the, in our passage that's very clear and perhaps startling. And, and the CSB, uh, the translation in, in the pews here and the one I'm reading from, um, mistranslates it completely, which obfuscates it here. Um, this is why when you're studying a passage, it's always good to have two different translations. Uh, in fact, I mean, having two translations is almost like having a semester of Greek under your belt. I mean, it's pretty good, you know? I mean, you're, you're making huge strides if you're just reading a passage in two translations, is what I'll say. Um, and so uh, the CSV drops the ball big time here, where every other serious translation stays true to the Greek text um, that's happening here. Um, and here, uh, the CSV says that our corruptible and mortal bodies must be clothed with incorruptible and mortal clothes. So so we might be tempted to, to read this passage and think, okay, someone else comes along and, and dresses us. Someone puts these clothes on us so that we can make it 
uh, so we can be prepared for the resurrection. But actually, the Greek verb here is in the middle tense, which, which means it's reflexive. Um, so this is how it should read, okay? So, so pick it up with me right here in verse 53. So this is how it should read. It says, for, circle and underline for, even if you have one of the pew Bibles, it's fine. For this corruptible body must, underline that word, clothe itself. You can write in it itself there. Um, that's what the ESV, the NIV do. Clothe, its, clothe itself with, the incorruptibility, with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must clothe itself with immortality. When, underline when, when this happens, when we clothe ourselves, skip down, then, underline then, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory, so on and so forth. So, so Paul's drawing a line here. Drawing a line in the sand between those who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, continually consider the gospel, give him access to their lives, and those who don't. Those who, through considering the gospel, have these clothes put on them in a certain sense, that put these clothes on themselves in a certain sense. And so what Paul has done is he's brought the Corinthians and us into the somewhat uncomfortable realm of the final judgment here. This is what he's done. He's told us there's going to be no time to consider them, so we must consider now in order to dress ourselves and put on these heavenly or Christly clothes. So this is, this is very important. This is very important. Okay, what are these heavenly clothes of incorruptibility and immortality that, that Paul is talking about? This, is, this can seem very abstract, right? Very abstract, very intimidating, very much like, so should I flip a coin? Which do I have them on? I don't know. I can't see these clothes. Obviously, they're clothes that you can't see. But we've just preached through 14 chapters of content, actually, where Paul is urging the Corinthians to do just this to clothe themselves, to move in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ, which is to say that, that he's been urging them to put on these, these new heavenly, or you could perhaps even say these Christly clothes. This isn't a new or rare concept for Paul either. He talks about this all the time in his letters. He's using this analogy in almost every single one of his epistles. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll read a few of them to you just so you can get more context on what these clothes actually look like, okay? This comes from Ephesians 4, starting in verse 20. Uh, we don't have it on a slide, but feel free to just write it down and come back to it later. Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 20. But that is not how you came to know Christ, Paul says to the Ephesians. Assuming you heard about him and were, and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus... To take off, that's clothing language, your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on, it's clothing language, the new self, the one created according to God's likeness, Jesus' clothes, in, in righteousness and purity of the truth. This, from, this comes from Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices, and put on the new self. You are being renewed in the knowledge. There's that same statement there. The renewed in the spirit of your minds was the previous passage, but renewed in your knowledge according to the image of your creator. Image of your creator, Jesus. Put on then compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If any, is, if any has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are to also forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. 
Let the peace of Christ, to which you are also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you and in all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. These are the clothes. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. One more passage. This is Romans 13, starting in verse 12. Let us discard the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk with decency as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual impurity and promiscuity, not in quarreling and jealousy. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and don't make any plans to gratify the desires of the flesh. Putting on heavenly clothes means what then? With our renewed knowledge of God... Paul talks about it in this letter. He says, but we, at the end of chapter two, but we have the mind of Christ. You heard that language in these other passages as well. With our renewed knowledge of God to let Christ transform and change you through the Holy Spirit, to participate with him in the ways he wants to take off our former ways of life and put on the Christ clothes, the clothing of, of heaven now in this life. It's, it's being renewed in the spirits of our mind, letting the peace of God rule in our hearts, letting the word of Christ dwell richly within us. Singing praise back to him is a big part of it as well. And it's not just all these passages. These weren't necessarily individual things that we do primarily in Paul's mind. These are communal, very communal practices, a lot of them. So much to do with unity, to be done and experienced in community. Here's an objection. It's a very reasonable objection. Ryan, this sounds pretty legalistic. This is getting really close to working to earn your salvation, to working so you can make it on the right, to be on the right side in the resurrection. This can't be what Paul means. Or perhaps your objection is like, man, I hate this about Paul. He seems to always be talking out of both sides of his mouth. On the one hand, he says, hey, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for you have been saved by grace, through faith, by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that nobody may, may boast. And then he pulls out this, clothe yourself. You better clothe yourself so that you're on the right side of the final judgment. So which is it? He has all this grace talk and then he traps you. Paul. Let me just say this, okay? No one understood the relationship between God, obedience of the law, death, and new life better than the Apostle Paul. Primarily because he had embraced the original Jewish law deeper than any of us have, deeper than most 99% of the Jews had as a Pharisee. And he's so zealous, he's rounding up Christians and throwing them in jail, overseeing their executions. Paul knew what it was like. He would, say, he would call this, this is the time when I had the mindset of the flesh. I was trying to serve God because I felt the need to get God's approval. I needed to please him to be on his good side. He writes all about this in Romans chapter 7, Galatians 3 and 4. He says that when engaging the law this way, though, you never felt like you're good enough. Never. Every time I did it, all I did was I found more sin and every time I looked at the law, all I found was, man, I'd really like to sin. What's that about? Kyleen told me a story this week. She said we went to an Airbnb. There was this huge squirrel running around. It's a beautiful, cute little squirrel. Then there was a sign that I saw. 
I said, don't feed the squirrel. I wanted to feed the squirrel. You know? So, anyways. <laughs> this is what Paul says the experience of the law is like for him. He says, I read, do not covet. And all sorts of covetousness entered me. Oof. It's Romans chapter 7. And this led me feeling my existential relationship with God was one where I was afraid of him. I was afraid. I lived in fright of God. And this was a cycle that he himself ran over and over. My fright of God just made me try to please God more and then engage his law. And then, oh, shoot. I'm more rebellious and sinful than I thought. I want to sin and rebel more than I started. And the cross of Christ was meant to get him off that legalistic cycle. All of the Jews. This is, Paul even said this cycle was good. It kept us really in our place and really helping us feeling the need to get off this cycle for the cross when the cross showed up. And the cross did show up. And the cross meant he could get off the legalistic cycle because this is what he discovered. Because if Jesus justified people, they could be in right standing with God who just trust him by way of the cross, then they were removed from this existential angst of feeling like they had to please God. Because the Holy Spirit was given to those who trust him, they no longer engage this law with the mindset of the flesh that says, I need to please God, what can I do? But the mindset of the Spirit, which says, I am a child of God and already accepted. But there's still the law. And it's really important to note that there is still the law. There's this hinge verse between Romans chapter 7, the mindset of the flesh chapter, and Romans chapter 8, this mindset of the Spirit chapter. There's this hinge verse that goes like this. Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So there are two laws then? What's going on here? Well, not really, kind of, not, but not, not really. This is more of what Paul is talking about. And Dave and I were jamming on this this week and he came up with this great phrase. The Apostle John in John chapter 1 says and the word became flesh. Jesus became, he's referring to Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the one sent from the Father. He's talking about encountering the Christ. And, we, and, and Dave had this inspiration that came like this. You might even put it like this. What, what he's saying is the law, we beheld him and, and, and the law became flesh and dwelt among us us. The law became dwell flesh and dwelt among. Jesus lived the perfect life, which means he perfectly obeyed and accomplished God's law. More than that, he, he fulfilled it, which is to say that he clearly showed what a life completely obedient to God looked like. Okay? Jesus fulfilling the law, it doesn't just mean that, that the law that also spoke of the Messiah, he came and functioned as that figure, although he did, and that's part of what it means to fulfill the law. It means that he came and he lived a life completely obedient to it. That he lived the perfect life of the law. That the law became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The, the, the word of the law that God gave the Israelites it showed up and it dwelt among us, and that's what it looked like. And so this is what Christians do with the mindset of the Spirit. Out of gratitude for being accepted by God and loved as his child, we engage the law that became flesh, Jesus, which leads to obedience empowered by the Holy Spirit. Because we're not doing it just by ourselves like the Jews did. That's going to lead to actual real obedience. 
real transformation, real joy, real life, and it results in an intense love and appreciation of God. And it's that cycle that we run going through the, the, the law-made flesh. We run that over and over again up and down, out of appreciation and knowing that we're fully accepted by God. We, we look and ask him uh, to show us how we might, what clothes of Christ we might put on, which actually works and transforms. And this is what Paul's talking about. And, and it's not just uh, like Paul needed a, a personal solution because he loved law, so he found this, okay, good, there's like this Christian version of law. No, he didn't just need some new law to follow. He's parroting Jesus. He's actually just saying what Jesus would say. Jesus said things like this all the time to his disciples. Um, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You heard this? If you love me, you'll obey my He said that at the Last Supper, John chapter 14. He also said it negatively, which is the other side. He said, many will come to me on that day of the resurrection and say, did we not do all these mighty things in your name? And he will reply, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And perhaps the most pointed thing that Jesus said that overlaps with what Paul is talking about is the parable that he gave in Matthew 22. Let's read through that together here. Matthew 22. It's a parable of a, a, a wedding banquet. This is in Matthew 22. Once more, Jesus spoke to them in parables. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. These first six verses, Jesus is really, uh, he's speaking to the Pharisees here. He's really trying to illustrate to them the history of Israel, that God is trying to redeem them and invite them to this wedding banquet. Uh, but they refused, and then they seize his servants. Whenever Jesus uses kind of his servants being killed in parables, he's typically referring to the prophets. The prophets. Um, the king was en enraged, it goes on, he goes on, and, and he sent out his troops, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. So he had Israel overthrown and exiled. Then he told his servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find into the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. It's, you can really envision this as the movement after Jesus died, uh, was raised, ascended to the heaven, and the church is now inviting all of the Gentiles also into this great wedding feast that God has provided, that the king and God has provided. When the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. These are the words of, of Jesus these are, these are the words of Christ. Um, and it introduces a lot of different tensions and, 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 I'm, and it may introduce a dilemma for you and I'm not going to solve that dilemma by providing you like a theological system of, of salvation and, and how it works. I don't think that's actually what is meant. I don't think that's what Jesus intended us to follow up with to kind of make us feel better. 
like Vula preached about a month ago, Jesus says there are Christians who merely claim his name, and then there are followers who wear his clothes. There are Christians who claim his name, but then there are followers who wear his clothes. Jesus issued so, so, so many warnings to this effect. I, I pray you, in, you engage them. That's how we participate in this great promise of the resurrection. We, we use the mindset of the Spirit to put on the clothes of Christ. It doesn't mean we're no longer sinful. And it doesn't mean if we are particularly sinful, it must mean that we're a Christian. No, no it, it just means that we are looking to him to clothe us. That with, through the Spirit, we are, we are kneeling before him and saying, Lord, you have control over my life. Lead me and guide me and tell me which clothes that I should put on. doesn't mean we're no longer sin, sinful. Okay? But we do get victory over death. Which brings us to our third point. Our third point. The present benefits of the resurrection. Present benefits. Benefits now. This is the fun stuff. This is the fun stuff. First, we have the promise that the sting of death is removed. Now, Paul's actually taunting death here. It's a taunt. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory. Where death is your sting. It's almost like the, the high school or the college football taunt of the other team. Famous scoreboard taunt. Maybe you've heard that one. How can Paul do this? Well, he's taken a page out of God's playbook. These words are actually God's words himself. That God spoke back in Hosea and in Isaiah. Kind of two quotes melded together. This is God's taunt of death. But, but this is God. Does God, does he really not feel a sting when we die? <laughs> like, do, you, do, you feel, do you feel that? Like, what's really going on here? Because let's admit it, even as we witness the deaths of others, we always experience the sting of it, don't we? There's a sting there, and it's real, and there's no getting around it. It stings to see others die. This loss, it just hurts. It, it, it hurts, in a sense, because it just represents that deep down in our being, we know something unnatural has actually happened in this, happening in this natural process of death. It, it hurts. This shouldn't be this way. It hurts. It hurts. Witnessing death stung Jesus. He set his face to go see his friend Lazarus, who he had knew passed away with the intention of going to raise him from the dead. And when he showed there, showed up there on the scene, what happened? The sting of death hit him. He mourned. He wept, it says. It stung. But this sense of loss and grief, as we witness the death of others, this actually isn't the sting that Paul's talking about here. This is very normal, and so don't feel like, oh, shoot, someone else's death, if I mourn that loss, maybe I'm not wearing these resurrection clothes. No, 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 no don't, don't worry. The sting that he's talking about is the contemplation and the reality of our own death, of, of our own death. And, and the word sting here is, is referencing a, like a poisonous animal, like a, a snake that has poisonous fangs which is true if we encounter it in the realm of sin and the law. In fact, in the realm of sin and the law, death becomes sheer terror, sheer horror. That's the sting of it. But not anymore, but because of Christ, he took that sting for us and transformed us to the point where, where we actually don't experience that terror. We don't experience that horror, that sting of death that's always there the horror of it, the terror of it, is removed. 
by what he has done. The sting is gone. He was always supposed to take that sting for us. It's always part of the plan. Way back in Genesis 3, God is talking to the woman, and, and uh, or he's talking to the snake, and he's giving the curse to the snake, and he says this to the snake, a, des- a descendant of the woman is going to come along, and he will crush your head, and you will bite his heel. You'll strike his heel. You will give him the sting. Think about it. Jesus sat in the garden of Gethsemane the night before his crucifixion, contemplating his death in sheer horror and terror. So much so that he sweat drops of blood. Sheer horror. Was he a coward? No, absolutely not. But just the contemplation of his coming death was completely different than ours. His coming death was to be that which is represented and truly experienced as God forsaking him. God's wrath upon sin. He experienced that that sting of death for us, which is the present terror and horror of of the upcoming death. Not just the punishment, the terror of it, the the, the horror of it, the the fright of it. And now we can face death completely differently. Death no longer is a marker of God forsaking us. Death is a gateway to deeper presence with him. Death is a gateway to a new and renewed body. Death is a step out of this fishbowl of oil and into a world of heaven and earth reunited together where our bodies are working how they're supposed to do, where all the systems of the world are working how they're supposed to do. There are no dark spiritual forces of evil. Death is the gateway, not something to, be ter- not something to terrorize us in this life. That's how we step away from the sting of death. This is why Paul says this really funny phrase, just four words um, in Philippians 1. Live, Christ. To die, gain. Just four words, just right there. Death is a gateway, a portal into a deeper, more rich experience beyond what we could ever imagine. And as we imagine it and lean into it more and more, we actually find ourselves putting on more and more of the clothes of Christ, more of Jesus' wardrobe on our shoulders. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's actually a good segue um, into verse 56, where Paul strings together a bunch of nouns again that are kind of archaic and confusing. Um, Sting of death, sin. Power of sin, law. No verses, or no, no verbs, just nouns. Um, This is what he does here. And I don't want to spend too much time here because I feel like we've hammered out these subjects already. Uh, But if you've ever wondered about the eternal resting place of of infants who pass away, this verse clearly shows us that it's with God. Where God's moral law has not been communicated or understood, there's actually no power of sin. And when there's no power of sin, there's no sting of death. If you walk this statement backwards, no law, no power of sin, no power of sin, no sting of death. So the sting of death is not for them either, like it is for everyone else in the world, quite frankly, that has ever lived. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. Children, infants, the stillborn, the unborn, those who are mentally incapacitated, have not been able to have this revelation of the law of God, who God is, and therefore they never come under the power of sin. So they don't experience the sting of death either. So if you've ever wondered about that, this is, this is the verse that kind of, in the, the passage that, that reaffirms that to us, that reassures us of that, that they're not able to be at odds with God. Praise God. 
So, so I hope you come and celebrate that while we definitely feel the sting and the loss of, of, of miles, that he didn't experience the sting of death himself. He's with God now. He'll be with his parents again soon. The second benefit now of, of the resurrection, okay? So that's the first, sting of death gone. Second benefit is intense gratitude, if you consider it. If you consider it. Intense and overwhelming gratitude for the victory that God has given us over death. A victory to be experienced now and a future free from all of the effects in the future too. So there's a future victory and then this victory washes back now in, in a certain sense in the form of Intense gratefulness, intense gratefulness. And this isn't just a throwaway line like, yeah, thanks God, this is great. It's so crucial. Um, a consideration of the resurrection leads to intense gratefulness. Uh, Tylene, I'm going to honor you for a second. Uh, Tylene's been employed at Sedaris for almost a full year now. Can't believe that. Whew, that blows my mind. Oh, man, that's so cool. Um, but, but, so many of you have come up to me over the course of the last year and just been like, Tylene's so incredible and, and amazing. She's so encouraging of me. It's so wonderful. And I'm like, yes, it, totally. I completely agree. She's such an incredible presence to be around. And, and, and I've asked some of you, like, what is it about you that, or about her that is actually encouraging to you? And, and many of you have just struggled to articulate. I can't really put words to it. Is it her gifts? Well, no. It's not, she has a lot of gifts. Tylene can do just about anything. Um, but it's not her gifts is what I'm going to suggest is that which you find particularly encouraging about Tylene. What you find, and you can reject this. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But I have spent more time with her, okay? Uh, <laughs> what you find as you hang out with Tylene is she is incredibly grateful she sees everything in her life as coming from the hand of God, everything that's happened in her life, everything that she's going to, and she's considered the resurrection a lot. She's incredibly grateful. Now, that's not to say that she doesn't have times where she's ungrateful, like the rest of us, that she would say she's fallen into discouragement or, or despair and, and forgets, and she would say, yeah, that happens to me too, and I need to pull myself out of it, but she does it. <laughs> she does it. She's considered the resurrection a lot. She's incredibly grateful for everything does it. All right, the, the third benefit of the resurrection that we experience now, um, this is in verse 58. I'm going to read it here. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Um, I'm grabbing my head in stress because there's just so much here in this verse that I wish we had time to talk about, but we can't. But the third benefit is confidence that whatever work we do for the Lord it is not in vain. It will not return void, is what Paul's saying. Whatever you do, Corinthians, whatever you do for the Lord, the Lord's work, whatever you do, it's not lost. It's not, it's not going to get forgotten. It's not going to return void. It, it contributes to that seed that's planted in the ground in some way that Dave talked about last week, last week that will, will grow in eternity. It's not void. It's not void. So what's the Lord's work? What is he talking about? Is this really only applied to people I have jobs like me or, or Dave or Tylene. No, 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 no. The Lord's work is literally anything you do that you wouldn't have done if you didn't have faith in Jesus. Anything you do that you wouldn't have done if you didn't have faith in Jesus. And so now I'm going to ask you, what are you doing that you wouldn't have done if you didn't have faith in Jesus? This is a homework assignment. This isn't... 
This is a homework assignment. Real homework. I want you to show up to your cohorts to unpack how the experience of this question went. What are the things that I do that I wouldn't have done if I didn't have faith in Jesus? And then ask another question. Well, take some time to list out those things that are in your life that, that you feel your faith in Jesus has inspired you to do. Now ask another question. What are some things that I feel my faith in Jesus inspiring me to do? What are some of the things that I feel like, like, like the Lord is leading me to work for him? Could be something as simple as going to knock on your neighbor's door that you don't know, even though you've been living there for a couple of years. Don't worry, I'm guilty of this too. Okay? Get to know him. Because Jesus says, love your neighbor. And you're going there. You're going to start a, a relationship with them. Maybe it's to love your wife like Christ loves the church. To try, maybe it's to try to create bigger and better conversations with your friends and coworkers. You wouldn't want to do that unless you had faith in Jesus. Big conversations are scary. To sacrificially give your time, your skills, your money to the local church. Look at what Paul is saying. It's a great investment. It's a sure thing. It will not return void. This is what Paul is saying. Anything. Anything you do that's motivated by your faith in Jesus Christ is the Lord's work. So what is it? What could it be? What might it be? Have you heard of the resurrection? Have you heard of the resurrection? Paul's asking this question of the Corinthians. Dave and I have been asking it of you. We can ask it of one another. What if we started gospel conversations with the people we didn't know that well, though, that maybe even perhaps not yet Christians with the same question? Have you heard of the resurrection? Do you know that Jesus rose for you? I think a lot of Western Christianity, we've heard the the question come out of the other half of the gospel for so long. Have you heard of the cross? Did you know Jesus died on the cross for you? Both are good. We don't have to start with that one. You start with one and then you round out to the other side. So you get both halves of the gospel that that are present and on display. Have you heard of the resurrection? Have you really heard of it? Now that you have, what are you going to do with it? Whatever it is, it won't be in vain. Let's pray.